Right, you guys can turn to Mark chapter 11. That's where we'll be today. Mark 11 as we begin this series, Beholding the Man, looking at Jesus in his last week of life here on earth before the cross. When I was in high school, I was in my church's youth group, and one of the leaders of our high school youth group was um, a guy named Bob, a big man. He was a dad of one of the other kids in the youth group. Bob was this huge, strong guy, but he was incredibly kind. He was actually one of the most jovial men I've ever met, like always smiling, always nice, always humble, always serving others. And so he came with us when we did a church mission trip to Mexico, and, and he was there helping and, and taking care of us kids. He was so happy about it, happy to be there. Um, well, one particular day, we were working on this house, helping to build it. It was really hot. And so our leaders took us to a public pool afterwards in Mexico, and we went swimming. And, and as we leave the pool, a couple local men follow us out, and they began to shout at the high school girls in our group, and they were speaking Spanish. I don't know Spanish, so I don't know what they were saying, but Bob knew Spanish. And you could tell because Bob got really red and really big. You know when a big guy like he breathes in and his chest gets huge and he's all tensed up and he stops on the spot and turns around and stares those guys down and begins to yell at them. And I don't remember all he said, but the the gist of it was you do not talk to women that way. And again, I don't know what the guys said because I don't know Spanish, but I could tell it was really bad and really serious because Bob got angry and Bob never gets angry. Well, that is exactly what's going on in our passage this morning. Someone is going to get really angry and aggressive who never gets angry. And so we're going to learn a lot about Jesus in this passage. When you think about Jesus, the words that come to your mind aren't probably anger or aggression or violence. Typically, the words that come to your mind are, are kind, loving, humble servant. You think of Jesus welcoming the children and you think of Jesus healing the the blind and the lame and you think of Jesus restoring the woman caught in adultery and yet in this morning's passage Jesus is not humble and he is not kind. He is really angry and really aggressive and even a little bit violent. And so let's find out what it is that makes Jesus furious. Look with me at Mark chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 15. So Mark 11 verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem and he, that is Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. This story is apparently very important to God because it appears in all four Gospels, which tells you you need to understand what's going on here if you're going to understand Jesus and what he cares about. So let me give you a little bit of background. This business of exchanging money and buying and selling sacrificial animals, it's actually not bad in and of itself. That business was actually set up 
by God. It, it was needed because this moment that we're reading about, this occurred during Passover. And Passover was this time every year when Jews and God-fearing Gentiles traveled from all over the world to Jerusalem to worship God. Well, when they would come to worship God, there were a couple things that they needed to do as part of the Old Testament law. First, they had to give their annual tithe to the temple, and you had to do that in local currency. That was actually spelled out. So if you're coming from far away with foreign currency in your pocket, you have to exchange it so that you can worship God in the temple. So the money exchanging, that that is okay. That's an okay business practice. And buying sacrificial animals, that was simply necessary. Because if you're traveling hundreds of miles or thousands of miles to Jerusalem, you can't bring your sacrificial animal with you. God knew that. So in the book of Deuteronomy, he said, when it's Passover and you're traveling from far away, take your sacrificial animal and sell it in your hometown. And take the money and travel to Jerusalem and buy another sacrificial animal there. That will be much easier for you to worship. So all of this is part of worship. Exchanging money and buying these animals. None of that business in and of itself was immoral. The problem was the location. That all of this business was happening in the temple. It did not used to be that way. For most of the Old Testament, these animals would be purchased and money would be exchanged in the Mount of Olives down there to the right. That's where this market was set up for most of Jewish history. But shortly before Jesus' ministry, the high priest decided to move that market from the Mount of Olives into the temple. And we don't know exactly why, but we can surmise it's a whole lot more convenient, a whole lot more comfortable and easy to just do your business right there at the temple where you're worshiping God. I mean, look, you don't have to walk all the way through a valley to get to a mountain on the other side of this ravine to be able to buy your animal and exchange your money. And so for the sake of convenience and comfort, the Jewish leaders move the market inside the temple. So the result is, as Mark says, people are carrying merchandise through the temple and that's not okay. Because the temple was not meant to be a place of business, it was meant to be a place of worship. Where people could come from all over the world to praise God for how good he is, to sing about God, to confess their sins to God, to make commitments to God, to turn their lives over to God. It was meant to be a place of worship, but now it was a place of business. It was like a market. So you would come to the temple and instead of finding a worshipful environment where you could spend time with God, you would be distracted by sellers yelling out their prices and buyers yelling out their orders and doves cooing and and cows mooing and all of this cacophony. It would make it very difficult to worship and that was the root of the problem. This is about distraction. That's what's going on here. The Jewish leaders had allowed God's house to become a place of distraction instead of a place of worship. People could not worship God because there was so much noise and busyness going on around them. And here's one more important historical background. The particular place where the religious leaders set up that market in the temple is the court of the Gentiles. So the Old Testament law, when it talked about the temple, it said that 
all the world can come, all people should come, but only Jewish people can enter into the temple. Everyone else is to worship from the court of the Gentiles, which was a big court, lots of room there, but that's as far as Gentiles could go in approaching God. Well, the Jewish leaders think, well, that's not our spot. Let's set up the business there. We can just buy our animals on the way in to the rooms reserved for us. And so if you think about what it would be like as a Gentile, you've heard about the God of Israel and how great he is and you want to know more about him. And so you travel to Jerusalem to learn about this God and to begin to walk with this God. And what do you find? A busy market. You can't worship God there. And so the problem that Jesus is confronting is that by setting up business in the court of the Gentiles, the result is that the Jews are distracted from worship and the Gentiles are prevented from worship. And that makes Jesus angry, like really angry. And so he drives them out. He drives out the buyers and the sellers and the money changers. And when I say that Jesus gets angry, I mean he is aggressively angry. You get some sense of that in Mark, but here is what he tells us in the book of John. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He gets a whip. So I love this meme that came out a few years ago because we never think of Jesus this way. We, we don't ever think of Jesus as angry, as aggressive, as violent. And yet in this passage, he is. And what I find fascinating is that this is the one and only time recorded where Jesus is aggressively angry about something. He never gets aggressively angry at the sinner's or the prostitutes, or the tax collectors. He never gets aggressively angry at the Romans, or Pilate, or Herod, the one and only time. He pulls out a whip is with the religious leaders who had set up shop in his father's house. You learn a lot about Jesus from that. A guy who never gets aggressively angry, the one time he does, you learn what Jesus truly cares about most of all couple things in this passage that you see that Jesus really, really cares about above everything else. Number one, he cares deeply about his father's honor. He cares deeply about God the Father getting the honor and worship that he is due. In the John account, right after pulling out the whip, like the next verse says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. As John saying, this is what was going on in Jesus's heart. As he pulled out the whip, he was overcome with zeal for the temple. For his father's house of worship. Zeal, it means intense dedication to something. Jesus was intensely dedicated to his father receiving worship. Now that's not only here in this account. If you think back to Jesus' most famous prayer, the Lord's Prayer, how does it start? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's what Jesus wants first and foremost, for the Father's name to be hallowed. That's a kind of fancy old-fashioned way of saying, may you be worshipped. 
May your name be regarded as holy. May it be revered. May you be lifted high. That's what Jesus wants most of all. That was actually the core of Jesus' mission on earth. He tells us in John 17, 4, I, that's Jesus, glorified you, the Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That was his work, to glorify the Father on earth. Now this, this word glory, it's fascinating. In Hebrew, kavod, it, it's often, it's kind of really funny. Kavod can be used for the glory of God or it can be used for a really, really big or overweight person. So what's the connection there? Well, the idea is if you imagine a massive guy, like think Shaq, huge guy. He is glorious in the sense that when he's in the room, you cannot miss him. If he walks up on you, you will be back on your heels. That's the word connection there. Jesus wants his father to be seen as a heavyweight. He wants everyone to take his father seriously. So on the flip side, Jesus doesn't want anyone thinking his father is a lightweight. That's exactly what the religious leaders had done. They claim to know God the Father better than anyone else on earth, and yet for the sake of convenience, they had set up shop in his house of worship. That tells the world he's really not that big a deal. I mean, come on, I'm not going to be bothered to walk all the way across the ravine to get my stuff, right? They treated God the Father as a lightweight, and Jesus was furious about that. It reminds me, when I was growing up, I don't know if your parents were like this, when I was a kid and we were watching TV, if we're watching a show and one of the characters on the show said, oh my God, flippantly, my parents would get upset and they'd turn it off. And as a little kid, I didn't understand that because God's not a bad word, right? We use it in church. I just used this. I like those four-letter words that I knew I couldn't use. I couldn't figure out what was going on. But actually, what was going on is exactly what's going on in Jesus' heart. My parents love God, and the idea of somebody using his name flippantly, that offended them. It felt like that show was making God out to be something lightweight, something that doesn't matter, something you don't need to care about. That's what Jesus was furious about. These religious leaders were treating his father as if he was a lightweight deity that wasn't worth your time, and Jesus is really upset about that. So Jesus cares deeply about the Father's honor, and we should ask why. Why does Jesus care so much about people worshiping his Father? There's a couple reasons. The first reason Jesus cares so much about it is because his Father deserves our honor. His Father is our creator. His Father is the almighty King of kings who created the universe with a mere word, who holds all of the universe together. He is our judge. He is our sovereign. It tells us at the end of the book of Revelation that when his dad shows up in the universe in all of his glory, this universe will melt. The entire universe from end to end of it will disintegrate when his Father shows up. So his father's a big deal. So the first reason that Jesus cares about us honoring his dad is because his dad is worthy of that honor. But there's a second reason. Jesus cares deeply about us honoring the father because that's what's best for us. Jesus loves us. That's proven by the fact that he died for us. So we know he loves us. Because he loves us, he wants what's best for us. And Jesus knows the thing that is best for you is to worship his dad. That's, that's what's best for you because you're a human and all humans worship something. 
There's no human being on earth that doesn't worship something. Everyone worships something. If you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping something else. Maybe it's another idea about God, or maybe it's money. Maybe it's fame. Maybe it's pleasure. Maybe it's success. Every human being worships something, and Jesus knows all of those other things will leave you empty in the end. Worshiping all those other things, none of them will satisfy you. And Jesus doesn't want you to be left empty and unsatisfied. So he wants you to worship the one and only thing that can fill you, that can satisfy you. And that's his father. Jesus loves you too much to be okay with you worshiping lesser things. He desperately wants you to worship his father because that is what's best for you and I. And he loves us. So he wants what's best for us. So Jesus desperately desires all people to honor his father. And that gets us to the second thing we learn about Jesus. Because honoring his father is what's best for us. Jesus wants all people on earth to get a chance to honor his father. Jesus wants everyone to have a a chance, an equal chance, a freedom to know and honor God. And so he's going to break down any barrier that stands between a group of people and God the Father. Jesus is a barrier breaker. That's what he did in his ministry. That's what he did in his death and resurrection. He broke down barriers that separated people from knowing and worshiping his Father. So when it's business that got in the way, he turns the tables. He throws the business out. No, business isn't going to be allowed to get in the way of people worshiping God the Father. But here in the book of Mark, that's not the only time Jesus is going to break a barrier. Turn a few pages to the right, chapter 15. Look at chapter 15, verse 37. This is Jesus as he hung on the cross. Right at the end of his time on the cross, verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It's hugely significant. The veil of the temple that separated the presence of God on earth from where all human beings were except one guy, the high priest. He was the only guy who got to go in because that was the Old Testament way. The Old Testament is all about barriers. Okay, so there were all of these barriers between different kinds of people and God. And those barriers were actually literal at the temple. There were walls. So Gentiles, you can go this far, but no further. Jewish women, you get to go a little bit further, but no further than this. Jewish men, you can go a bit further, but if you're not a priest, you can't cross this wall. Priests, you can actually go into the building, but you can't go through that veil unless you're the one dude. The high priest. So Jesus, as he dies on the cross, he tears that down. The veil literally tears down to symbolize there are no more barriers between human beings and God. And so Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That dividing wall, that's the literal walls of the temple. He broke them down. It's done. There's no more division between Jew and Gentile. No more division between priests getting to go in and the rest of us not. No, all of us now have equal access directly into the presence of God the Father. We're told in Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. You, whoever you are, whatever race, gender, economic class, education level, age, whoever you are, you are welcome into God the Father's presence 
through Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross and by rising from the dead, he was making it possible for all people to freely approach and access God the Father. And that's the good news that we call the gospel. So so we tell people this good news that no matter how much they have sinned in life and no matter who they are, no matter what race or economic level, they are welcome to know and be with God the Father now and forever, and it is a free gift. They don't have to work for it. They don't have to be good enough for it. They don't even have to come to church for it. They just have to receive it. They just have to say, Jesus, I believe you died for me and rose from the dead so that I can be with your Father, so that I can approach your Father now and forever. That's the good news of the gospel. All people are welcome on equal terms to be with God the Father. So Jesus cares deeply about his Father's honor and about making sure all people get to honor his Father. You can tell how much he cares because, again, it's the one time he gets really aggressively angry. So now that we know that Jesus cares deeply about these things, we need to reflect on our lives for a bit. We need to think about how we are doing in these two areas. So I want you to ask yourself, are you honoring the Father? Remember, when, when you think about this account, the issue here, the reason they're dishonoring the Father is not about immorality. It's not about some blatant form of disobedience. What is it about? It's, it's about distraction. They have allowed something that is not bad in and of itself to distract them from worshiping the Father. That's the root of the problem. So where have you in your life allowed distraction to prevent you from giving the Father the honor he is due? Worshiping Jesus' dad. I'll give you a couple examples that jump to my mind, very common. I think for a lot of us, we struggle with the distraction of digital devices. So this is a new thing You won't find anything about it in the Bible. They weren't around. Relatively new in human history that we always have the world in our pocket. We always have a device connected to the entire world. That device is not bad or evil in and of itself, but it will work its way in and distract you in every area of life. It's never going to take itself away, right? It doesn't have legs. It's not going to walk away and give you some time. No, it, it will always distract you. So the question is, when you look at how you're living life, how you're spending time with God, are you exercising good habits, good disciplines of cutting off the digital devices and getting alone with God? When I was growing up, actually, as long as I can remember being a Christian, I always heard our time with God called a a quiet time. I don't know where that phrase comes from, if you're curious. It's not in the Bible. It is a convenient phrase, though, because it kind, of, it kind of is getting at what Jesus wants for us. Quiet time. Quiet doesn't mean volume. It means free of distraction. Jesus wants you to have times when you can get with his dad and you're not letting anything distract you. Now, now sometimes you can't control a distraction. If you've got toddlers, you're going to be distracted a lot. Your boss might call. Fire alarm might go off in your dorm. There's lots of distractions you can't control, but there's many you can And so I think what Jesus is challenging us to do is to think about those things we allow to intrude in our quiet times with God. What do we need to change in our habits so that we get uninterrupted quiet time with God? It may be that the phone needs to be in the other room on silent. 
It's as simple as that. You wake up in the morning, maybe that's when you have your quiet times, and your phone is in one room and you are with your Bible in another room so that you can be undistracted in your devotion to the Father. Do whatever it takes to get that distraction-free time with the Father. So that, that's one example. We, we allow ourselves to be distracted by our digital devices. Another example, for many of us, we allow ourselves to be distracted by our schedules. Our schedules are so busy that we're preventing ourselves from having any real meaningful time with the Father. For students, uh, a lot of you have a full load of classes and you're working and you're in three student organizations and two Bible studies and you try to make it to breakaway. You got everything in the world going on and when you're not doing one of these things, you collapse because you're so tired. Parents, for, for a lot of us, life is unending busyness we have work we we have kids we might have older parents we're taking care of we have finances to take care of we have a house to take care of we have shopping to do for food we have all of our kids activities we have so much going on we we can't fathom having a quiet day in fact for many of you parents you're not hearing anything i'm saying because you're already thinking about what you're going to do with your kids after church today i know i've been there my word of advice for you, if you look at your life and you say, man, my schedule is really distracting me from the Father, my strong encouragement to you is to focus on the word simplify. Find some way to simplify your life. Students, it is better to be in one Bible study and have time with God than three without. There's no reason people need to be in three Bible studies. I mean, come on, that's crazy. Just pick one. <laughs> simplify your life parents simplify life for yourself and your kids a lot of us parents we struggle with with a lie that the world tells us that's what what's most important for our kids is that they get into a top tier university that's what matters most. And so we do all of these things, not just school, but, but tutoring and music lessons and sports and all of these things so that our kids have all of these experiences so they can be successful in life and get into a great college. And I got to tell you, there's nothing in the Bible about that. That is not what God calls success for your kids. What does God call success for your kids? That your kids learn from you how to be still and worship God. So if you have allowed your drive for your kids, your ambition for your kids, your busy schedule for your kids to prevent you or your kids from having quiet, interrupted time with God, that's got to change. Because the most important thing for you and your kids is that you're worshiping God. So find those things that are distracting you from devotion to the Father and make whatever changes are necessary. Jesus cares deeply about that. Not only because his father is worthy of your undivided attention, but because it is what is best for you and you will suffer without it. So that's the first thing for us to think about. Am I honoring the father? Second thing to be thinking about, am I helping others honor the father? Remember how deeply Jesus cares about all people getting the opportunity to honor his father. So let me try to ask this, this to you in a couple more practical ways, a couple practical questions for you. First of all, as you think about whether you're helping others honor the Father, think about it kind of from the negative perspective. Have I placed obstacles in other people's path? 
So have, have I, by my words or actions, placed obstacles in the path of others coming to worship God? That's exactly what the religious leaders had done. The obstacle was quite literal. It was business in the court of the Gentiles. Have you done something like that? In your life, Christians often do. There's plenty of examples of this. Um, Certainly easy ones when Christians spout racism or bigotry or anything that makes some group of people seem less valuable to God than another group. That is a barrier, right? We, We cannot do that. We must be the first to speak publicly and loudly about how God loves all people and all people are equally valuable in his sight because they're all made in his image. Okay, so that's an easy one. Here's a, a second one. This one actually, uh, it breaks my heart a little bit because I, I have a friend who, who deals with this one, Christians acting unethically. This can create a barrier to people. I have a friend who is completely uninterested in Christianity. He, he won't talk to me about it, completely closed subject. Why? Well, when he was a boy, he went to church. And in this church, there was a leader in the church who, for his career, he sold insurance, but he was unethical about it. And so when that boy's grandmother needed insurance, he came calling. The problem was she was losing her memory. And so he came calling and sold her a policy. And then came back next week. Sold her a policy. Came back next week. Sold her a policy because she kept forgetting. So he sold her policies until she had nothing left. And so for that boy, who's now a man, he's older than me, he's never going to talk about Jesus because that's what he sees. Every time there's some scandal of unethical behavior, a cover-up, abuse in a church by Christians, this is the result. It makes a huge barrier to people coming to know our Father. Another example for you, when Christians conflate evangelical Christianity with a particular political party, that creates a barrier. There's some Christians who will tell you, you cannot be a Christian and a Republican. There are other Christians who will tell you you cannot be a Christian and a Democrat. That is all a lie. Complete lie. The Father welcomes us all, regardless of political persuasion, regardless of economic persuasion. Whatever you think about all of that, you're welcome here. The church is a place where a communist and a capitalist can worship together equally as brothers and sisters who love one another. Because economic policy is nothing compared to the worship of God. So make sure you never conflate those things. Make it clear to people. Your politics, your economics, it's okay to debate them. It's okay to discuss them. It's okay to care about them. Just make sure they never come anywhere close to how much you care about the Father. Right? Okay. Another example, as you think about not letting obstacles in the way of people, um, Christians create obstacles when we shame people because their sins are different than our sins. And church has done this a lot in history. For a while there, uh, the Christian church in America was blowing it because we made it out as if a particular sin, like in this case, homosexual behavior. That that was somehow worse than the sins that we all struggle with. And so if you come and you deal with pride or lust, you're welcome here. But if you deal with homosexuality, please don't come. That was hugely sinful on our part. Because that created an obstacle. As if certain classes of sin are worse than others. You're not welcome to worship here. No. The Bible's really clear. We are all sinners and sin is sin. We all come on equal terms with the Father. On our knees asking for grace. All are welcome here. No matter if you did drugs last night. No matter if you're sleeping with someone who's not your spouse. No matter if you had an abortion. You are welcome here. 
Now, we're going to talk openly about sin because sin hurts us. It destroys us. We're going to be honest about that. But we are all sinners who need the grace of God. And so all are welcome here. So make sure as you talk about these issues, that you talk about it in a way that makes it clear all are invited to worship the Father on equal terms. So kind of from a negative perspective, make sure you're not creating any obstacles to people coming to know and worship the Father. Second thing to think about in your life, kind of on the positive side, have I sacrificed my comfort to invite others in? Remember, the key issue that Jesus is confronting is that for the sake of comfort, for the sake of convenience, the religious leaders set up this business there in the temple. Well, I don't think any of us are inviting business into the church, but for many of us, we tend to put our comfort above this need to invite others to worship the Father. And I'm guilty of this. I've been guilty of this many times in my life. When I'm hanging out with a group of people who don't go to church, I have found that it's really easy for me to talk about new restaurants or movies or cars. That one's always easy for me. Or, or even politics. I can go there, but not religion. Because in our society, religion is like this taboo subject. You're not allowed to talk about that. And, and I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to make people uncomfortable. I don't want to make myself uncomfortable. And so I stay silent. I, I don't invite them in to know my father. But... But the reality is, if I'm putting my comfort level above them hearing the good news about Jesus, then I am the religious leaders. I'm doing exactly what they did. They put comfort first. I'm putting comfort first. If I don't talk about Jesus because I fear the discomfort of that conversation. And so I'm not saying that you have to talk about Jesus every time you have a conversation with anybody. What I am saying is that you need to be proactive and intentional to tell people who don't know about Jesus this good news of the gospel. That there is a a God in heaven who loves them so much that he is inviting them right now to find grace and healing and salvation. If they will simply trust in his son Jesus Christ. Be willing, be bold to take that risk and share that good news with people. It is worth it. Don't be like the religious leaders who chose their comfort over the salvation of others. Be like Jesus, who is willing to walk through discomfort for the sake of inviting all to know how wonderful his father is. This morning, I want us to actually act on this message. What does Jesus want us to do? Very explicit. He wants us to honor his father. So we're going to do that right now. We're going to respond to, to God the Father and we're going to respond to Jesus in honor and worship. We're going, to, we're going to speak about how great the Father is. We're going to speak about how great Jesus is together. So if you'll stand, we're going to worship and then I'll come up and close us in prayer. Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have invited us to know and worship you. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you've made that worship possible. We praise you, God, that you are a God who invites all people to know you, all people to be with you now and forever. We praise you that you don't 
choose only certain kinds of people, people who are good enough, rich enough, or of a certain kind. No, you, you bring all of us. We're so grateful that your invitation is for all. You are so worthy, Heavenly Father. You are wonderful. You are our Savior. You are our King. With the words of that song, we want to say clearly, you are our only hope. We, we have hope in life only because of you, Father. Thank you so much for the Father that you are. You are so worthy. Help us to live in light of your worthiness, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.